with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today is April 21st, 2010. That's 421, and because this week worked out weird, this is episode 421. I'm ready for this week to be over. These numbers will stop overlapping. Uh, but what are we going to talk about today at episode 421? We're going to talk about planning and developing your own personal plan and how to do it. And I'm really going to try to dissect the process for you today. Don't worry, I'm not going to make it into an engineering problem. I'm going to keep it entertaining and and inspiring and educational all at the same time. But we're going to look at it because I constantly tell you, remember, I can't give you my plan. I can give you the basics and understanding and outline. I can show you what I've done. I can tell you what I've done. I can tell you why I've done it. I can tell you all of these things about why I prioritize things a certain way and what things I put in my pantry and what emergency supplies I have and what survival supplies I see that other people don't even consider survival supplies, why I have a garden, what I grow in my garden. I can tell you all this stuff. But when it comes down to it, if you don't own your own plan, you won't stay consistent with it and it won't belong to you, and if you don't own it, you'll fail with it. And I think a bigger problem is a lot of you don't even have a plan. But if I'm going to tell you constantly, hey, you need your own plan, I thought maybe I needed to do a show that helped you a little bit more and guided you in the direction of creating one. And this comes from a question that I actually had on Monday where I gave kind of an abbreviated answer. Today we're going to expand on that. We're going to go into it. We're going to break it down. And I'm going to help you determine how to make your own plan. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production. You know, I was recently asked by email, what, I, obviously I love this DVD. What do I find so great about it? I'll tell you what it is. It's that I get to see the way that somebody else has actually done something and, and made it work in the real world. About the only negative feedback I've ever heard on this is it's mostly a tour of their farm. It is. And it, it goes into each uh, segment and explains why they've done what they've done, how they've done what they've done, and what they use to get it done with. And I think we can look at today's show as an example of how to use something like that. I may not do every single thing that Marjorie's done on her farm. In fact, I guarantee you I won't. And I may do some other things. But the things that I've picked up from the methodologies that she's used, the plant types that she's used, and things like that, have allowed me to go further with my own efforts. That's why I love the DVD. There's ideas in it that I mean I just would have never thought of before. Growing a fast-growing, uh, basically a tree that turns into an annual in our climate to create shade in your garden so that the midsummer heat is lessened. Great idea. Also produces a great amount of uh, edible uh, foliage for small livestock and, and, and mulch for uh, either sheet mulching or composting. Just one example. Uh, another example would be the way that they uh, blocked off a certain segment of their poultry and created a gateway so that their dogs could travel back and forth and protect the geese, but yet the geese couldn't get through the fence. The way that they created a natural roosting situation for free-range chickens, so they don't even have a, you know, they have a, they don't even have a chicken house. They get chickens that roost in trees, and the way they protected the chickens uh, where they're roosting in the trees by lining the trees with sheet metal, so they can protect them against raccoons and other animals that would crawl up there and attack them while they're on the roost. Uh, it's just amazing, and they do have a chicken house for, for eggs, but a lot of the chickens actually just roost up in the trees. These are just some examples uh, of some amazing things I never would have thought on my own. That's why I love their DVD. Uh, next up is the Berkey guy. Hey, the Berkey guy is awesome. You know why I love him? Because he sells Berkey light water filters, and that allows me to make water that's not safe to drink safe to drink, uh, and in- including just making water that comes out of your faucet better for you to drink and removing some of the crap that's in there. Uh, but the Berkey guy is also a cool guy, and he's running a contest this month, and he's giving away a whole bunch of Berkey stuff. And you can find out more about that on our forum. So check out the Berkey guy. 
Phone him up, email him, ask him any questions you have. He's going to make sure that you get the system and the components that you need for your individual situation. Uh, he's really an amazing guy, and every listener that's ever talked to me about doing business with him has said, you know, he's always done something a little extra for me. It made me feel special. Hey, man, that's the kind of small business person I want as a sponsor. Make sure you check out today's show notes. There'll be a link to his contest in the forum. Make sure you enter that because he's giving away like one of every one of the systems he sells or something like that. It's a, it's a lot of cool stuff, so you just might win if you play. Uh, next up, consider checking out our gear shop today. T-shirts, hats, challenge coins. We're almost out of challenge coins. Uh, if you want a challenge coin in the next couple months, get them today because uh, they're almost gone. Uh, I really recommend that you do that. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, you'll be supporting my show at 20 cents a day. Uh, my show is primarily listener-supported. That's why I have the unique advertising model that I do, and I'm basically turning away advertisers every day now. Hey, can I advertise on your site? I can put you on a waiting list. Uh, and it's because I'm supported by listeners, so my loyalty goes to the listener first. Uh, so I really recommend that you uh, consider joining the MSB if you haven't already done so. Uh, you'll get about 20 members-only videos. You'll get discounts from a bunch of people. i got a new vendor coming. I'm not going to get them in today. I'm really sad about this. Let me give you a preview of the type of vendor that I'm going to be working with in the future. This is cool. had a guy contact me. His daughter's 14, has had her own business since she was 11. She has these really cool bumper stickers. It all started out with one that simply said, Read the Constitution. Uh, she now deals through a whole bunch of people at gun shows and things like that, has a website. And they wanted to know if I could bring her on as a sponsor, and I, I just don't have the inventory to do it for her. But I'm really impressed with a young entrepreneur like that. So she'll be added to the MSB uh, probably Thursday or Friday, and you can check out her site then. I'm, I'm going to hold off on that until I get her added. But uh, I, I really, when I do that, I want you guys to support this young lady. 14 and started her business at 11. That is the future of America right there. That's motivation. All right, so uh, with that, let's go ahead and get on into the, uh, you know, the main subject today, which, again, is developing your own personal survival plan. Now, to me, if we're going to do that, the first thing we have to do is define what we're, what we're planning for. So there's two things and two words that are thrown around all the time that I think we need to define. And one of them is survival, and one of them is preparedness. Let's start out with survival. Survival, at its core, is simply that tomorrow when you wake up, you'll actually wake up and breathe oxygen and convert it to CO2. In other words, you'll still be here. So even if you're shot in the arm or stabbed in the leg or fell down a cliff or had the house fall down on you and you're in a hospital with a machine going beep, 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 if, as long as you're there, you've technically survived. However, all of those things that I've just described are not things that I would really like to experience. Um, I don't want to be starving but yet surviving. When I say survive... Uh, of course, I mean we have to start with that basic definition, but we have to move on beyond that. And to me, survival means continuing to have a life that's worth living. So it may not have all the wonderful things that I expect from my life. There may be hardships, uh, there may be adaptations, and there may be adjustments, but to me, survival is at least being able to shelter myself, feed myself, have a limited amount of time to think so that I can actually produce things so they can have a functioning life. To me, survival means keeping my family together, having my wife, having my son. Right? That's survival to me. It's more than just waking up, breathing the next day. So that, I think, is important. And you can define survival however you want. You can, if you're 22 years old or 25 years old and single and recently uh, spent some time in the military, you might have a very different, different, different definition of survival. You might think running around playing Rambo in the woods is survival. I'll tell you what, young man, you'll change over time as your priorities change. But it's up to you what that definition is right now. All I will tell you is if your definition is at all limited, Sit down and think today and see if you can expand it and see what real survival really means to you. Because I guarantee you, no one wants to live in a way that's all about misery, suffering, and sacrifice. And, and if we're going to live that way, then we don't really need to worry about a lot of the things that we talk about, like prepping and everything. We can just go out and be homeless vagrants in the streets. And, and with a little bit of it savvy and a little bit of the proper uh, picking of a place to live geographically, we can pretty much beat 
the survival problem right in of itself, and we'll make it, we'll get by. Okay? So if it's just misery that you're willing to accept, survival's not that tough. So it's kind of like, today I'm asking you to sit down and do a financial plan. And in one financial plan, you're defining uh, how to save enough money to get by. In another financial plan, you're deciding how to save money and invest it so that you can be comfortable. And in another one, you're trying to figure out how you can be wealthy. More on wealth in a minute. But as you can imagine, those plans would be very different. Well, I'm not going to ask you to make three different plans today. I'm just going to ask you to make sure that you're defining survival with sufficient uh, foresight to create comfort in your life as part of your survival planning. The next word we have to look at is preparedness. Now, what is preparedness? I think people look at that and go, it's duh. It's having the stuff you need in case something goes wrong, right? And I guess it is. But is that sufficient for your plan? If Again, if you're young and impetuous, it might be. If you're a little bit older and you have other people that you have to look out for and look after and care about and be a leader for, Maybe preparedness isn't so easily defined. Maybe preparedness is is more about being able to avoid the acute situation in the first place. So preparedness isn't just having a bunch of stuff in case the lights go out, right? It's having a generator and maybe alternative energy so the lights just don't go out. Big difference in the two. One is preemptive and the other is reactive. So when you look at your preparedness, I want you to define what you're doing and understand whether it's reactive or preemptive. And one's not necessarily better than the other because there's always the potential for failure. So having things like flashlights and alternative light sources in your home is always a good idea, even if you have solar panels on your roof. Because you can have storm activity that takes out the grid, if you're still dependent upon it, and damages your solar system so that it doesn't work. So there's always a potential for failure. So you need both reactive and preemptive preparedness in your life, but you need to define each one as you add it to what you're doing so that you can prioritize it according to the plan that we're going to develop together today. The next thing we need to do is consider the meaning of two other words that are tossed around in our industry constantly. One is self-sufficient and one is self-reliant. There are many people that view those two words as interchangeable. I want to be self-sufficient and self-reliant, right? And, and it's like saying, I want to be tall and I want to be big. Yeah, but even with tall and big, those two words have a lot of difference, don't they? I've seen some five-foot-five-inch guys that were big in a negative way and in a very positive way. You know, I've seen some five-foot-five-inch guys that are just, you know, got big old guns from working out all the time, and I'd call that a big guy. And I've seen some five-foot-five-inch guys that have eaten one too many McDonald's burgers, and they're big, but they're not tall. So even those words, now when we look at self-sufficient and self-reliant, it's magnified the difference between the two of them. Self-sufficient means that you don't need anybody for anything. Self-sufficient means that you could just stop leaving your house altogether. Period. And you don't have to go anywhere, you don't have to bring anything in, you have a 100% self-contained situation. We'll talk about timelines later. Most people, though, cannot be permanently self-sufficient. There's a time period of how long they can be self-sufficient for. Self-reliance is based on how much self-sufficiency you have and how little you need and how prepared you are to do without. So self-reliance is based a lot on those preemptive and reactive preparedness steps that you take. So self-reliance, for instance, might be that I have... Uh, the ability to provide backup lighting in my home. Now, that means that I don't have self-sufficiency because I still require the grid for my lighting on a day-to-day -day basis. But should the lights go out, perhaps I have a generator and seven days' worth of power, uh, fuel for the generator. Now what I have is seven days' worth of self-sufficiency, but I'm not self-sufficient because I'm not living with it today. Okay. So what I really have is self-reliance to be able to survive seven days forward without a system I've come to expect. And those, those two areas start to overlap, but it's important that we delineate between the two because if we don't, then we lead ourselves to false conclusions like, I'm completely prepared. 
I can handle anything that comes my way. Well, as we'll see as we progress today, that's generally not the case. And that's why preparedness and survivalism is a lifestyle, not something you do once and forget. It's like working out. If you don't do it every day, it starts to wear off, and all the progress you begin, you've made begins to fall backwards. So it is something you focus on just a little bit every day, and take a little bit more every day, and do a little bit more of the plan every day, and a little bit of tweaking every day. It doesn't have to take a lot of time. It can be 20, 30 minutes a day of focus. But if you do that throughout your life, what it eventually leads to is early retirement, but we're not going to talk about that today. So the next thing we need to do, now that we have gone through and looked at survival, preparedness, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance, is acknowledge the fact that we need a plan. And guys, you're the worst about this, just like me. Uh, most of us, when we get into preparedness, kind of put together a loose plan, and then it gets pushed aside, and we have no real organization to it, and we just go, you know what, I've got a little bit extra money today, I'll buy a little bit more food, we put it in the pantry. I'm going to go out and start working on my garden. And I'm going to do the next thing I'm going to do is a project on this. And I'm going to put together an outbuilding. And in that outbuilding, I'm going to store this, this, and this. And put some climate control in there so that I can store some of my food. Uh, the way I'm going to do that is very, it doesn't even matter what it is. But you see, it's like a mosh posh put together. Now, the problem with that is it's very difficult then to ever really assess not just the point that you're at from a self-sufficient, self-reliant standpoint, but your progress. And that's, that's the, the, the other edge of the sword, and it's the one that's more damaging. It is pretty easy to assess where you are, even if you don't have a plan. In fact, we're going to talk about doing that here in just a second. But if you don't have a plan and you're not constantly assessing where you are, then measuring your progress is very difficult. And that eventually leads to frustration, and frustration leads to anger, and anger leads to resentment, and resentment leads to falling out and stop preparing. And going, ah, it's good enough the way that it is. We're spending three or four weeks doing nothing. And it's like not going to the gym for three or four weeks if you're a person that goes to the gym. Same thing. So it's very, very important that we continue to pay attention to the fact that we need a plan in the first place. And that we actually take that plan and we write it down and we modify it. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be run with a bunch of spreadsheets and inventory control software. But you do have to get a notebook and start writing these things down. Or put it on a computer. Do it on a blog publicly. Do whatever you want. But make sure that you're formalizing it. You're reviewing it. You're checking things off. And when something's not getting done over, if you go, man, I need to get this done by the end of this week. And the end of the week comes. You go, fine, I'm going to make it a priority by the end of the month. The end of the month comes. That item needs to be done immediately. What it means is you're not looking forward to it, so you're putting it off and you're procrastinating. That needs to be moved up the priority list because you've already said it's a priority by putting it down and giving it a, a timeline. And from there, and you'll notice that the first half of this is all about how to think more than what to do. Because if we don't think right, we're not going to plan right. Because planning is not an action process. The plan creates action. Planning is a thinking process. So the next thing that we need to think about, we need to delineate once again and look at two concepts and make sure that we're splitting them apart in our minds so that we split them apart in our planning and our understanding of danger. And that is delineating between acute and long-term effects of a disaster. Give you an example. You're sitting in your house. All of a sudden the walls start shaking, stuff starts falling off the walls, roof starts collapsing, Things start falling apart. This goes on for about 20 to 30 seconds. Maybe over the next couple hours is a couple out aftershocks. You've just been through an earthquake. Now, anything short of your roof falling down on top of you, crushing you, and killing you, you've now survived the acute portion of the disaster. But as we've seen in Chile and uh, Haiti recently and uh, Baja, Baja, California, that is not the main problem from an earthquake. That's the acute response. And the reality is, in most acute situations, you have only a matter of seconds to act. Unless you have long warning. If it's a hurricane, and they say, you know what, in three days it's going to be there, and you live in the path of the hurricane, you have time to move. That's, that's the exception. Most acute situations don't occur that way. An acute survival situation, you're sitting down having dinner at a restaurant with your family and some psychopath comes in and starts opening fire. 
You have seconds to react, to dodge, to duck, to move, to get off the X, return fire if you're carrying. But you either survive the acute situation or you don't. And then there's aftermath. And that type of aftermath, you're going to deal with debriefing by the police and mental trauma if you weren't killed or injured. So it's moderate aftermath compared to a much larger disaster. Same thing. You're going to get fired from your job. You've gotten fired. That's the acute. It's done. Doesn't kill you. Doesn't threaten your survival. But now the aftermath begins to take its toll on your family. So that is the long-term effect. Now, now I have to deal with the fact that we can't pay our bills. Johnny's got to quit playing soccer. So it can be the mundane thing that millions of Americans deal with all the time. But it, that, that mundane thing destroys probably more marriages than anything else. Because all that debt that was acquired during the party period, and all of the overspending, even if there's not a lot of debt, is evident the minute that the job's lost. And there's resentment from both sides of the relationship because the, because the financial planning wasn't done right. So it doesn't matter if it's an earthquake. doesn't matter if it's a tornado. doesn't matter if it is a collapse of the economy. If the economy collapses and the dollar becomes worthless, it's a relatively short-term event. Now, actually, it would be a lot longer than an earthquake or a tornado. But compared to the long-term aftermath, the long-term consequences, the collapse will be short and the aftermath will be longer. In fact, the more severe and the longer the duration of the acute period, the longer and more miserable the long-term consequences will be. And we need why we need to think about this is, the majority of our prepping needs to be to deal with the consequences because they're more severe than the acute. Now, that's where we go back to preemptive and reactive. So we have a lot of reactive preps, right, to deal with aftermath. We can only have so many preemptive effects because we can't walk around in a, in a suit of armor like we're a knight from the Middle Ages, put our kids in a suit of armor when they go out to school, and walk around paranoid believing that there's a black helicopter hovering somewhere over our head, reading our minds, with a foil hat wrapped underneath our, our armor. We can't do that. Not if we want to survive, by my definition, which is having a life that's worth living in the first place. So we can only be so preemptive, but we have to also look at preemptive in two phases now, now that we've gotten here. And that is, there is the preemptive, which is, having a weapon on me and being trained with how to use it. So if I do uh, end up dealing with a psychopath and I have to return fire, I can take preemptive steps during the acute situation. But there's also the preemptive steps that allow the acute situation to occur and pass and go into aftermath. And I've still preempted the aftermath for myself. I've not filled back in. So, again, let's go back to power. If I have a full functioning solar and wind system at my home that can provide all or most of my energy needs that I'm using day-to-day -day in a self-sufficient model, a self-reliant model, and the electrical grid fails, I've now taken a preemptive step, but that preemptive step is fitting into the long-term consequence. And you might wonder why it's so important that we really dissect these concepts. It's because if we don't, as we go through the planning process, it's harder and harder to prioritize. And when we can sit down and look at a step and say, this is what I want to do this week, we can ask ourselves, is it preemptive, reactive, or both? Does it improve our self-sufficiency or self-reliance or both, and how? Does it contribute to our survival? Does it contribute to our happiness? Does it contribute to our preparedness? And where are we weakest, and does it fit those keys into that weakness, which is kind of where we're going next. So, as we do all this, we have to go back to one of my core tenets, and one of the things that I've talked to the audience here about since the very foundations of the show, and that is the commonality of disaster. I've talked about already today a bunch of different disasters. You lose your job. You know, an earthquake smashes your home. You deal with a tornado. You deal with a hurricane. You deal with an economic collapse, whether it's full and total and complete desolation or something just twice as bad as what we just went through. That would be pretty bad. And everything in between. And the realities are, every disaster has commonalities. And if we don't define those, then planning again gets difficult. 
And the commonalities are, number one, that the systems of support that we come to expect fail. Now, they either fail because they're not there or they're not available to us. And, and you might wonder, how could there be a difference between a failure of a system and a, a system that's not available to you? Well, if a system fails, it's not available to anybody. If it's not available to you, that doesn't mean it's not available to me, based on my geography or my situation in life. Let's look at it. A perfect example would be uh, if the electrical power goes out in your neighborhood. That system is not available to you and your neighbors, but if I live a mile away, it might be available to me. Obviously, this is a much smaller disaster, but I'm really being more personal than that, because that's still something somewhat outside of your control. Unless you, you know, The only control you have is to have redundancy in your power. You can't control whether or not the electrical lines are, are taken out by a storm or by a, an idiot with a backup. So when I say that you know availability uh, versus accessibility, what I'm saying is if you lose your job <clears throat> and you've come to be dependent uh, upon going out to eat for your meals, going to restaurants and and buying crap food that you probably shouldn't be eating anyway constantly, but you're eating a very low-end, inexpensive, cheap diet, but you could be eating for less if you were creating your own foods. And if I want to go get a Big Mac and fries, I still can, even though I live next door to you, but that's no longer accessible to you. And you'll find that a lot of things start to take on that aspect if you have individual failure. Uh, if you have no income anymore and you haven't saved up any money and you're deeply leveraged in debt and you can't pay your credit card bill this month, then one of the systems of support you've been dependent upon is that credit card. And suppose that, you know, as long as you still had a, a credit limit on it, you could go out next month and buy your groceries with that credit card. That system was accessible to you. But when that month end comes and you can't pay the bill on the credit card and you don't pay the bill on the credit card because paying the mortgage or the rent and the electric bill takes priority over the credit card, and it most certainly does, now that system of support, which is a negative system, credit, in the first place, becomes inaccessible to you. You go down to the grocery store and say, I don't have any money, I'm broke, but I'm going to buy groceries with my credit card. You whip it out, they put it through the machine, it doesn't work. It's not accessible. But it is available. It's available to me. I could be behind you. And I don't use credit cards, but I use my debit card with the little check logo on it, the Visa logo or MasterCard logo, so that I can pay for my groceries without carrying around a wad of cash or writing a check. So I'm right behind you. You're putting your stuff back, and they're slotting my card through and beep and approved, and it works. Important that we understand that. That many times, just because the system is available to society as a whole, it still may not be accessible to us either as individuals or to a group of people in a geography. So, for instance, could you get gas the day after Hurricane Katrina destroyed New Orleans? If you live just about anywhere other than New Orleans or southern Mississippi uh, or some of the other areas that were hit and not really talked about, but if you lived anywhere other than that general vicinity and you wanted to go out and fill up your car tank, no problem. If you were in downtown New Orleans, problem. So those systems were available to the public at large, but not accessible to the people in a disaster. So the reason I talk about that is there's a lot of people that don't think that the whole system can fail. The whole system can crash. That we'll never have a point where the dollar is devalued to zero. If you believe that, you should listen to yesterday's show. And some shows I did last week, you'll find out that it is not only possible, but at some point in time probable. But even if you don't believe that, even if that's too far for you right now, my point is something can happen that affects you, whether it's you as an individual or you as a geographic region or area. And no matter where you live, you're not safe. There's something that can go wrong. You're in the north, it's a blizzard. In the south, it could be a severe drought that creates firestorms. We had grass fires in Texas a few years ago. They went through one area so fast, and like in this little cyclone thing, that they didn't touch two telephone poles that were extremely far apart, but there were two more that were between those two poles. And this fire went through with such intensity that the newscast showed a picture of these two telephone poles basically cut in half by the fire and suspended by the wires above 
And since it was a grass fire, it was low to the ground, and it didn't burn the wires up way up on the pole. It just basically cut through two telephone poles like a blowtorch. Imagine your house in the way of that. There's always something anywhere that could potentially threaten your safety, your self-sufficiency, your survivability. That's why you have to have a plan. The next thing we need to do now is we need to start actually looking at the, the plan itself and developing our plan itself. And that starts with, a, with an assessment of what we have. So remember we started out talking about self-reliance and self-sufficiency? Well, we need to define what our self-reliance is and the timeline of our self-sufficiency. In other words, we need to define for ourselves as a starting point. If right now I went outside, shut off the electricity to my home, went outside to the water box and shut off the water, not that I'm saying you should, but if you did, took our car keys, buried them in a hole in the ground, and we couldn't go anywhere, we couldn't get any supplies, we didn't have any power, we didn't have any support from the grid, the phone is unplugged, the cell phone doesn't work, you can't call anyone, you can't go anywhere, you can't do anything. Or, if you did go somewhere, you'd go to that somewhere and then you stay there. So if you're going to bug out, you have a place you're going and you get there and now you're done. Either or, for this exercise. And now we say to ourselves, how long can we survive that way? One, how long can we survive that way without complete and total misery? How long can we have that more positive definition of survival, a life that's worth living, and yes, number two, how long could we continue to beef under the most extreme circumstances because maybe I just have to hold out for a couple more days and knowing that longevity is important. But what I really want you to take out of this exercise is to find how long you could last. And I'm not saying be happy playing your fiddle like the grasshopper in the field and dancing and acting like an idiot. What I'm saying is how long you could be reasonably comfortable Full belly every day, or at least close to full belly every day. Some sense of, of hope. Some sense of, of we have an ability to get through this. How long could you get by? Oh, one thing you have to add to this that you might not think you have to add to this. The mail's still going to run and you still have to pay your bills. Because the only way we'll cover the extreme variance of disasters that could occur to you. Obviously, if the, if the economy completely collapses and the dollar is worth zero... Probably not going to pay your bills, at least for a while, until they revalue the currency. But if you've lost your job, you still have to pay your bills. So we have to put ourselves into a mental state where the disaster could be anything, from very, very severe impacting systems of support to what is perceived as mundane but is actually highly dangerous to the survival of the family unit. And then we must define that. And you know what we come up with when we define that? We come up with what our true wealth is. So this includes, if you had to liquidate every financial asset you had, how much wealth do you have? How many days could you survive forward paying your mortgage, paying the electric bill, or not paying the electric bill because you don't have electricity? You've got to look at it both ways. How long could you survive in a situation where things are pretty much normal, but you don't have any money coming in? And how long could you survive where things are completely not normal, and you don't really need so much money, you need some, but what you really need is food, water, shelter, the ability to procure more food, things like that, and define how long you can survive. I think most Americans will be shocked at how short a timeline they really have, how little wealth they really have. We look at people in what they call the McMansions, right? Three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars houses, driving a Lexus SUV and another really nice car. Mom's got two, three great kids. They're all in a bunch of activities. Right? They're soccer and whatever. We see these people and we look at them, and if, especially if we're people that make less money than they do, that have less income than they do, that live more within our means than they do. And we look at them and see we perceive them as very, very wealthy people. Look at all the stuff they have. But shut the money off for them. And a lot of them would be homeless in a month. Well, as long as it takes to evict people and all the government intervention, three, four months, but they're really going to be dead broke in a month. They have zero wealth. Or they have 30 or 60 days worth of wealth. 
where you look at a poor guy, at least we define him as poor. It's kind of a farmer, and he's got a little homestead, and, you know, he just kind of gets by, and he works a job at a little box factory or something like that, you know, making eight, nine, ten, eleven dollars an hour, something like that, drives a beat up old pickup truck, etc. But if we measure his wealth, he's far more wealthy. He might be, you might be able to lose that job at the box factory, and he might be fine for a year. So he's got a year's worth of wealth, maybe two, maybe three, depending on how, how well he's adapted to his situation, he might be extremely wealthy. The person that lives the preparedness lifestyle for 20 years and really focuses on developing it, at 50 might be one of the most wealthy people in the world because they may be able to not actually need income for the rest of their lives, at least direct income that's proportional to their effort. Now, where do I get this concept? Is this mine? No. This comes from a guy named Buckminster Fuller. He's a guy you might want to look up if you want to understand how to think about money. But I take his thoughts about money and I apply them to all things. And I apply his definition of wealth to your livability without money. Because in some of the disaster situations, money is not what you need. Because you can't spend it on anything. There's no food to buy. There's no water to buy. There's no gas to buy. You need food, water, and gas for yourself, and you need it now. So define those timelines. Once you have that defined, you know your wealth. And you know it in more ways than most people are ever willing to look at. Because it's not the most comfortable thing in the world, but you've got to do it. Once you do that, now we have to look at our priorities. Now we have to sit back and say, what are the things, and this is where the plan gets personal, what are the things that are most important to me to keep in our lives? And some of you may look at a person who has a kid that plays soccer and say, that is not a priority. Johnny playing soccer every week is not a priority. Maybe it is to Tom, who, who happens to be Johnny's father, who's worked really hard with Johnny since he was two years old kicking a soccer ball, and Johnny or Debbie, because there's a lot of girls that play soccer too, has a really good shot of getting a scholarship and going to college for free because he's a great soccer player. So maybe that is a priority for Tom. Well, then Tom needs to put that on the list. Now, I'm not saying it's more important than making sure that Johnny eats tomorrow. If Johnny doesn't eat, he can't play soccer. It doesn't mean it doesn't go on as a priority. It is up to you to list your priorities and then... Move them around into a point where you say these are the most important, these are my secondary, these are my tertiary, you know, and, and keep working your way down. And this is going to be based a lot on your weaknesses, too. Where are you most weak? So if you told me that, you know what, it, it is important to me that my kid continue to play soccer in his soccer league, I'd say then you need to create a little savings account that's put aside it's an emergency fund for his soccer fund. But you better damn well accept the fact that it may not be the most important thing. But again, it's up to you. So anything that there's a priority for, create a reserve for it. And that includes food, one of the most basic preps we can do. If it's important that you're going to be able to eat in a situation where you're cut off from systems of support, how long of a of time period are you comfortable with? If you tell me I'm comfortable with 30 days of reserve food, I'm going to tell you, Okay, fine, do it. But damn well know it's 30 days. Read the labels, get the caloric inputs, put the meals together in sample arrangements. Think about them. Make sure your kids will eat the crap that you're storing. Don't go out and buy 50 pounds of pinto beans and go, there, uh, we got to be able to go a month on that. Boy, that would be boring. And you know what? Family of four ain't going a month on a 50-pound bag of pinto beans. Not very well. It would be very, very unhealthy. And may have some severe problems with it, like getting them to eat it in the first place, not to mention the dietary limitations of something like that. So you have to, whatever you do define, you have to define more than just my goal is 30 days. Well, what does 30 days of food look like? What is it made up? What are its component parts? Get a journal. Start journaling every single thing that you plan and every single thing that you do. Journal everything that you eat in your house, excluding McDonald's, Burger King, and all the other crap you shouldn't eat anyway. The things you actually bring home and eat, journal what they are. Did the kids like it? Do they not like it? Did you like it? Did you not like it? How many times could you eat it before you're absolutely sick and tired of it? Is it storable? If it's storable, by what means? 
So plenty of things are storable as long as the electricity works, because they go in the freezer. So maybe a priority becomes to be able to find ways to store those types of food without freezers, or to make sure the freezer has more self-sufficiency, a greater period of self-reliance, which could be a generator. It's up to you. Notice I'm not saying do one, two, three, four. I'm giving you the way to dissect this and the way to think about this and how to create your own list. Very important that you do that. Go through and look at everything you eat. Where is water on your list of priorities? That needs to be up there. Food, drink, shelter. How do you keep shelter? Well, some things might be reinforcing your property so if you're in a storm-prone area, you're less likely to receive damage from a storm. Obviously, homeowner's insurance is probably a good idea. If you don't have flood insurance, and you live anywhere where flooding is possible, get flood insurance, because the insurance company will screw you over in situations that really aren't flood damage by saying it was flood damage. So you'll be insured for a storm. But they'll say, it wasn't really a storm, it was the flood waters. Well, I wouldn't have had a flood in my house if it didn't rip the roof off. Well, we'll cover the roof, but we won't cover the interior. You need to have pragmatic, practical preps in addition to the, you know, kind of the tactical, uh, sexy stuff that we talk about. Where is self-defense on your list of priorities? For some people, it's very, very high. For some people, it's very, very low. They don't feel that they need to focus on it very much. Personally, I think that's a mistake. But I'm telling you, you have the freedom to put these priorities wherever you want them. And if I don't give you that freedom... Unless you just happen to think so much like me that our plans are almost identical anyway, you won't execute your plan. So list these priorities. Define your weakest points. This is the most important component. You must, once you define your priorities, identify where my weak is based on my priorities. If being able to make sure my kids eat every day is a high priority, being able to make sure I and my wife eat every day is a high priority, then when I sit down and I determine what's my longevity, and I determine that if I threw the keys in the pool, turned off the power, couldn't leave the house, couldn't call Domino's Pizza, couldn't do anything except sit home and eat what's here, that in seven days we would be out of food that we really kind of want to eat, and in nine days we would have nothing except a couple cans of food that we were going to give to the homeless, and we finally eat those, and at ten days we have nothing left. And our longevity is ten days of food. Folks... Based on your priority, you've decided that's a weak point. Now, if you do an assessment and you've been doing this for a while, and you you know do an inventory of your food and get an assessment of where you are today, and you look at it and go, we would really be fine for 45 days, and we could go another 15. We wouldn't. We would start to lose the variety and, and enjoyability of what we're eating. But we've got 60 days worth of food, and you're comfortable with that. It is less of a weakness, so it goes lower. You know, the next stuff for your food prepping goes lower on the list. But I remember when I started bringing lots of storable food into the house. Dorothy kept saying, well, I think that's enough. Why do you think that's enough? Because I don't think we'll need more than that. How much do you think we have? A lot. And I'd say, how long do you think we can live on this? And she'd go, oh, that's got to be a month's worth of food. And we'd go through it, we'd look at it, caloric inputs and all, and go, oh, that's three weeks. Well, she'd say, I feel like three weeks is a lot. But the important part is you didn't know what it was. And there's so many people that make a snap judgment like that with any prep. How many batteries are enough? I want as many as I can get, but uh, we have spatial limitations and financial limitations. But it might be interesting to find out those two C batteries that run that one particular light. How long is the lifespan of that light with those two C batteries? How many C batteries do you have? What is the degradation rate of a C battery? In other words, how much longer is it likely to last when it's fresh versus when it's a year old? How long has it been since you've rotated your batteries out and put new batteries in? And based on all of that, if you had to rely on that light, providing light for you for four hours a day in total darkness, how many batteries to that light do you have and how long could you expect that light to last for? Now, do you have to be that much minutiae with everything? No, but it's good to at least get a kind of a viewpoint of that. Does anything else use those batteries? If it does, would you need that item too? If so, how much use would you add? How does the one item's use affect the availability of batteries for the other item's use? You can do that with food. You can do that with water. People look at water and go, oh, we got like 20 gallons of water upstairs. You know, we could drink that for a long time. Can you bathe with it? Can you wash with it? What's it going to be like if you're stuck in your home 
for, oh, I don't know, three weeks. Three weeks. Regional disaster, dangerous to go outside, pandemic flu lockdown. Very, very probable event that could occur at some point. And if we got off with three weeks with it, we'd be really, really lucky. You've got two adults, three stinky kids in your home. Nobody can take a bath for three weeks. The living conditions start to degrade. But what are the health consequences? How, 20 gallons of water for drinking only and cooking is it enough. I'm not saying it's not if you're just going to drink and cook with it. But how much does each person get? Four people, 20 gallons, 21 days. Well, think about this. If it's 21 days and you have 20 gallons, it's call it a gallon a day available. Four people, everybody gets a quarter of a gallon. It's not enough. It's not enough. Plain and simple. For drinking and cooking alone, it's not enough. So where would you get additional water from? What additional water storage capacity can you create for yourself? But where is it on your priority list? How likely is your existing water system to fail? You have to create these priorities for yourself. And I, I said this before, but I'm going to say it again as we move forward. You have to journal this stuff. You have to write it down. And you have to write every single nitpicking thing that you think of down. I don't care if it's on a computer or a, a 15-cent notebook from the dollar store. I, I really don't care where it is, but it has to be journaled consistently. And you have to journal things beyond your preparedness. Journal weather events. The day's temperature. Every day you should make at least a little bit of an entry. What was the temperature in the morning? What was it in the evening? Did it rain? Did it snow? Did you go fishing? If you went fishing, where did you find fish? Where did you not find fish? What were the weather conditions like? Did you go hunting? What game did you see? Did you work in your garden? What damage by what insects did you note on your plants? Does that sound like disaster planning? It's huge disaster planning. It's massive disaster planning because it's the accumulation of relevant data. And what that means is all of a sudden you're in a situation where you're going, you know what, this year we're going to have to rely on our garden a lot more than last year. Daddy's lost his job. His unemployment's running out. Nobody in this stinkhole town is hiring. We have enough money to pay the bills to stay in the house for the rest of the year. I have no real hope of finding a real job. I can do some odd jobs here and there. But that's it, and we're going to have to rely on this garden for food. We're going to have to make it better. We're going to have to plant more. Well, knowing when you planted something and it grew and the frost killed it last year might be a good little piece of information to have. Knowing that you tried to grow a particular crop last year and there's a particular pest that, that attacked it at a particular time might be a really good piece of information to have. Saying, you know what, Dad's stuck. I might as well go fishing and put some meat in the freezer. Knowing the days and the conditions in which you did really good last year might help you take the best opportunity to make that trip productive because now it's not pleasurable. It needs to happen. So we often say you can't rely on fish, game, forage, and gathering. And it should hit the fan, folks. And on one side, we're right. Because if it's an economic collapse, economic collapse of the United States, and everybody's freaking out everywhere and raping and pillaging everywhere, then being able to go out to your local lake, fire up a boat, even with a little tiny motor that uses a half a gallon of gas for the whole day, and, and motor out and catch some fish is going to be all but impossible. But if the disaster is specific to you, or specific to a certain segment of society you have to be part of, Maybe those things are available to you. My point is you don't know what will and what won't be available to you. And the more acute and severe the disaster, the more mileage you have to get out of everything that is available to you. So the journal tells you how to do that because it tells you what happened last year and the year before. And you can bet that many of those things will be similar, if not identical, in their conditions going into the future. Without that data, you don't know. And you're looking at a seed packet that tells you, plant two weeks after your last frost date. Well, I don't care what the computer says your last frost date is. What was it for you the last three years? And when you planted a little bit too early, even when it wasn't frost, what type of mold or fungus happened? And if you, if you pay attention to these things... When you do have to rely on them, 
You don't, you're not guaranteed success. Survival is not a right, and it's certainly not guaranteed, and it's not provided to you. But, the more knowledge you have, the more chance you have to create it for yourself. So journal, progress, successes, failures, the weather, everything. The next thing to understand is a plan is designed to be fluid. But you must have a basis and changes need to be documented. That's part of that journaling. And here's what I mean. A lot of people say, I don't want to plan because I don't want to be locked in until I have to do this or I have to do that. Because my situation in life is changing all the time. And that's true. And there's an old saying in the military, the battle plan never survives contact with the enemy. Which means we all sit down and we make a plan. We're going to flank this way and we're going to send the tanks here and we're going to use artillery like this. And then when we attack the enemy, the enemy responds. We gauge the response of the enemy and we have to change the plan. But we have a plan in the first place. If we don't have a plan, we don't know what to change. And we don't know what the consequences of our changes are. I made a post on the blog yesterday in, in one of the comments section where a guy had quoted Robert Frost. I said, here's one of my favorite Robert Frost quotes. And that is, never take a fence down until you know why it was put up in the first place. Well, without a plan, it's like there's a fence out there and you start ripping it down because you don't like the way it looks and you find out it was put up by your neighbor to keep his cattle from trampling your entire property. And next thing you know, everything's destroyed on your property. You looked at the fence and said, that fence is on my side of the property line. Maybe it was. Maybe it was on your side because he needed to put it there, because there was rock formations underground, and it was either put it there or not put up a fence at all. You get my point. You have to know what you're working on, so that if you change it, you know what the change is for, the why behind the change, and what it affects on the other side of things. So if I'm going to say, you know what, this month I'm not going to take my surplus income and use it to increase the longevity of my food supply uh, directly through storing food. Instead, I'm going to invest this, this month in building a garden to create reproducible food. Well, what was your timeline in getting to 60 days worth of stored food in your pantry? Where are you at? You're at 45 days. How much longer will it take that to get there? It's not that the decision's right or wrong. It's that if you don't know the consequences, you don't make an informed decision, and you also don't get back on track the following month to go back and reallocate funds to shore up the place that you've shortfalled the month before. So the plan, yes, it changes, it's fluid, and it's completely yours. And I'm not trying to lock you into anything. I'm allowing you to lock yourself in where you feel the need to and have flexibility where you feel the need to based on your own priorities and judgment. But you've got to have that plan and you've got to make it solid at least in what its long-term objectives and goals are and in defining the places where you're the weakest. And don't be afraid to define your weaknesses. Don't be afraid. So many people are afraid to look at their weaknesses. They're the same people that when the credit card bill comes in the mail, they don't open it until the day before it's due because they just don't want to see what it says. Right? Or you get any kind of uh, correspondence or mail, and you don't want to look at it until you absolutely have to. You put it on the back shelf. That's because we don't like to feel uncomfortable about things that could harm us. Well, in this, this line of work, in this type of business that you're in, and this is your work. It is your business. I don't care if you're a banker or an accountant. If you listen to this show and you're focused on making yourself more reliable, this is part of your lifestyle, your business, your operation. You don't have the luxury of not paying attention to something because it's uncomfortable. The things that are uncomfortable are often the most important things in doing it right. So don't avoid things because they're uncomfortable. I also want you to be sure to test yourself. Voluntarily and involuntarily. Maybe once a month, shut the lights off for two hours. At night, in the dark, when it matters. Deal with it. Deal with the fact you don't have air conditioning in the middle of the heat of the summer. Now, if you have an infant or something, come on, use your brains, right? Don't put yourself into a dangerous situation. But put yourself into an uncomfortable situation once in a while. It's okay to be uncomfortable for a while. And again, like I said, you don't want to put anybody in harm's way. If it's 101 degrees outside and you have an infant, it's probably not a good idea to go out and shut off your, your power uh, because that would put, put the child at risk. But if you have that, maybe you better think about the fact that if the power goes off, you know what? The power doesn't care. 
And the consequence that puts your child at risk, the same one you won't put at risk with, with the drill, and you shouldn't, if the real world does it, there's no compassion. Reality has no compassion. Reality is not evil, it's not malicious, but it's not compassionate. It's neutral. It is what it is. And if, it, if reality creates death, reality creates death. If reality creates sickness, reality creates sickness. If reality creates maiming and damage and, and crippling effects, then that's what it is. If you get in a car wreck and you're not wearing your seatbelt and you go through the window and impact a telephone pole, you're dead. And no one can ever change that. If the power goes out when it's 105 in the middle of a heat wave and your child is dying of heat exposure, your child is dying of heat exposure. Pretty freaking horrible, isn't it? It's possible. So when you start thinking about running the voluntary drills of turning things off, and you go, well, this is why I don't want to do that. Well, don't do it that way then. But then you better think that that becomes, that where does that go? Priority. Way to keep at least one room in the house at a suitable temperature while I'm dealing with having a baby. Real thing that had to be dealt with during one of the hurricanes in South Texas by my good friend Johnny Max. Little bitty baby in the house. Had to be taken care of. Had to have air conditioning. Window unit, small generator. Probably saved that kid's life. Or at least prevented a lot of stress. These are things to think about. So voluntarily, put yourself in, in some discomfort for an hour or two or three. Go Have a little mini vacation. Go camp in the backyard. And start saying, if we only had to, you know, every time you go get something from the house, journal that. Uh, the bugs start biting us. Uh, send Johnny in to get the uh, uh, repellent out from under the uh, sink. Obviously, bug repellent then goes on a list of things that we need. Because we get bugs around here. You see how this starts to just all fall together by itself if you just start to pay attention and be willing to be flexible and to occasionally test yourself. Then what what do I mean by involuntarily testing yourself? Here's what I mean. Uh, This winter, uh, it went down to, I believe, 7 degrees the night that this happened to us in Arkansas. We're all sitting in the house, Dorothy and me, and we're watching our little 12-inch TV and uh, reading some books and got the fireplace going already, and it's about 10.30 at night, and it's dark as it can be. I mean, it's inky dark up there, uh, even when lights are on and, you know, the five little homes that are on the, the road that we live on, and and we're just enjoying the fact that it's cold outside and we're warm and that we're snug, and she's laying on the couch and I'm laying on the floor, and, and we're happy. And then all of a sudden, power goes out. Absolutely gone. No power. And we live at the end of this kind of isolated road, and we're still tied into the grid, which means that if power's out in a lot of places, and it was, the priority to turn our power back on is low, because if you go all the way down, you're talking maybe 20 families in the whole line that comes up there and feeds that that side of the mountain. And if there's a 1,000 people without power somewhere else, obviously they take priority over 20. So we know we could be without power for a long time. We have a generator, but I don't think it's really necessary. Let's test ourselves. We could always fire it up if we had to. So what do we do? We had a whole bunch of cordwood sitting on the porch, went out, and we brought in way more than we would have brought in in most situations, right? Because we didn't want to have to open the door again. Was, the heat was beginning to fall from the, from the house. Set up the couch real close to the uh, fireplace, made Dorothy a bed on the floor. I slept on the couch. That way both of us were exposed to the heat radiated from the fireplace, and both of us had a heat trap behind us. Her the bottom of the couch, me the top of the couch. Bundled up, got the fire stoked up, and every time it started to wane down, uh, we would uh, go ahead and uh, throw another log on the fire. And we had enough wood there to easily make it until morning when the sun came out and gave at least some warming to the, the house, and we could go out we could see what was going on. Fired up the uh, portable radio with the hand crank and started listening to uh, a radio station of some guy that was talking about the spirit world or something like that. But, hey, that's kind of cool in this situation. We just kind of put it on in the background. We sat there with a lantern, and Dorothy grabbed a clipboard and a pen, and we sat there talking to each other while we listened to this guy in this situation. And we said to ourselves, what if the power wasn't coming on for two months and we couldn't leave? What do we have? This is our bug-out location. What do we have available to us? 
And what would it be nice to have that we don't currently have now? And we ended up with a list of like five more things to add to what we have up there. That was an involuntary test. And we didn't actually have to do anything except think about it. And being in the real situation made it more real. And it became productive. And I'll tell you what, the power came back on uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I got her up. I got the, I went, First thing I did, I went in and I turned the, the thermostat to make sure it was going to heat the house up. And I went and I just kept the fire going. And I slept on the couch for about another hour. Because everything other than the living room in the house was cold. As it, I mean, it was freezing cold. And uh, so after about an hour, the house started to warm up again. So I woke her up and we went to bed. Because now the, the power's back on. There's no reason to be sleeping here on the floor and, and me on the couch anymore. I wake up. At about uh, probably seven o'clock in the six thirty maybe six thirty in the morning, and I am freezing, and I'm like, my crazy wife turned off the heat. So I went in and I realized the power had gone back out. Uh, so eventually we got up, we got the fire really roaring again. Uh, I was thinking about plugging the generator in. We made coffee with uh, you know one of our little butane stoves by boiling the water and pouring it through the coffee filter. I uh, cooked some breakfast up with the little butane stove, and uh, we were deciding what to do with our day, even though the power slot, the power came back on. But we used the experience without panicking to test ourselves, even though it was an involuntary test. It's kind of like a, an alert in the Army. They don't always tell you you're going to have an alert tomorrow. So there's a planned alert where, hey, we're going to have an alert tomorrow, and there's the unplanned alert. Alert! Right, And that's how you have to view these things and make them as productive as possible. Um, the last thing I want to tell you as I close up today, and the most important thing probably that I'll tell you today, is you have to remember that no one cares about you and the people you love more than you. In many situations, when things go terribly wrong, and there's pain and suffering and misery, and that harsh dose of reality hits. There are plenty of people that want to help, but their priority is first with themselves, and then once they're okay, they'll look for other people to help. And if there's a lot of people that need help, and a few people able to respond, there are times when there will be no one coming. Or by the time that they do come, by the time that they do get there, it's too late. That's more harsh reality. So you are responsible for you. You are responsible for your family. You are responsible for what you have and what you don't have and how you use those resources. You are responsible for your plan. You are responsible for executing your plan. You are responsible for testing yourself. You are responsible for how you think, act, be, and do. It's all about you. It's not about FEMA. It's not about the president. It's not about the congressman. It's not about your neighbor who you're crying because he won't listen to you about preparedness. It's about you and your own. You put your own household in order first before you worry about anybody else or anything else. Focus on the things that you control. Do that, and you will make progress so quickly with this type of planning process that it will be unbelievable to you where you are a year from now. And remember the big picture. Even if nothing goes wrong, you are improving your life by thinking this way. And if you do it for 20 years, you can probably retire or semi-retire before you're an old person wearing the Pens diapers. And that bullshit commercial that they show of the two old people carrying their flip-flops walking down the beach almost never happens for anybody because by the time you're that old and the government says you can retire and the retirement planner says you can retire, it's hard to enjoy it because we poison ourselves with our food supply today. We eat too much. We eat the wrong things. We're in putting chemicals into our bodies. We're breaking them down, and we're not as healthy at 80 as our grandparents were. And how sad is that? And at the same time, we're dead broke by the time we get there. We're dependent upon a social security system that, folks, if you ain't retiring in the next 10 years, assume it ain't going to be there. And if you ain't retiring in the next 20 years, according to social security's retirement age, it's gone. It's not there. You're not getting it. It's never going to be there for you. Assume that the 6.5%, 7% that disappears from your paycheck and the matching contribution that goes from your employer to Social Security is gone. It's stolen. It's theft. 
Put it right next to inflation. It is gone. And whether it's making sure that you're okay as an older person, having quality of life in that mature stage of your relationship for soul building, or dealing with a catastrophe, it is all about you. Note the title of today's show, How to Develop Your Personal Survival Plan. Not Jack Spierko's survival plan, your survival plan, because you're responsible for yourself. But you know what's great about responsibilities? There's a lot of rights and sovereignty as an individual that come with taking the responsibility for yourself. So do it. Plan it. Act on it. Test it. Make it your own. And build it into your life in a way that improves your quality of life every day. Do that, and you'll find yourself in a much better station in life in the not-too-distant future. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, because it all gets spent.